Hello, this is Alex Israel speaking from Alon Shabbat, and this week we're going to talk about uh, Parashat Tazriya Matsura. Um, as we all know, uh, the Parashat Tazriya Matsura focus more than anything else uh, upon the malady of uh, Tzara'at, uh, sometimes translated as leprosy, but we will call it Tzara'at so as not to confuse it with the modern phenomena. Uh, people find it difficult to get to grips with Tzara'at as it is a phenomenon that we do not encounter in our regular lives and all the details of Tuma and Tahara are distant from our um, Judaism of today. And usually most people's Divrei Torah this week will focus upon uh, the famous rabbinic pun Mitzara, uh, Motsi Shemra, that somehow Tzara'at is a punishment for Lashon Hara. And uh, people spent Shabbat talking about Lashon Hara rather than the actual details of the parasha. Now indeed, this is a tall order, but I'm actually going to try and uh, talk about Sarat itself uh, and its different uh, appearances in the Tanakh and try and see what is unique about our parasha and try and figure out how our parasha fits into the mosaic of all the different pieces. So here goes. Sarat appears in the Torah in many different places not only in our parsha. Uh, probably the most famous is that of Miriam, uh, where Miriam talks to Aharon about Moshe and says some apparently negative things. It's not clear what she says. We read in the text, Vayichar af Hashem bam, um, God is angry with them. And uh, no sooner has the cloud through which God speaks removed itself from the tent, name Miriam b'tzorat kashaleg. Miriam is... Uh, it appears to have Tzara'at, uh, she looks white as snow. This is not the only place where we see Tzara'at um, in Tanakh. Many, many personalities receive Tzara'at in almost a sudden a manner. For example, uh, the King Uziyahu, uh, who goes into the temple and actually wants to take over the temple in some way to act as a Kohen. And he goes and brings the Ketorets, usually reserved for the Kohanim, for the Kohen Gadol, and suddenly, as he goes upon the Mizbeach, he finds himself uh, afflicted with the Tzara'at. It appears suddenly on his forehead, and they rush him out of the temple, and he has to be quarantined for the rest of his life. Another famous story is Gehazi. Um, Gehazi, the sidekick of Elisha, his assistant, who, as a result of his greed, uh, acts inappropriately, and uh, Elisha curses Gehazi, and suddenly he gets Sarat, he gets uh, leprosy. Another famous story would be Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu in the, in the signs that he has given at the burning bush, uh, takes his hand um, and he suddenly sees that his hand has become Sarat Kasheleg. Uh, there are other cases of people with Sarat. We see Naaman, the Assyrian captain with Sarat. In our Haftarah this week we will see the Arabah Mitzoraim Four lepers who uh, lurk around the uh, in the city of Shomron, um, and and therefore Tzara'at is something which definitely accompanies us through many many different locations in Tanakh. However, I would dare to say that the way that Tzara'at appears in the vast majority of these stories and the way it appears in our parasha uh, are radically different. Let me try and uh, explain what I mean. 
in all, in most of the other stories of Sarat in the Torah, um, Sarat appears, uh, first of all, as a punishment, and generally it would, it would seem to appear, uh, suddenly. Even in the cases where it's not necessarily a punishment, like Naaman, uh, there certainly is a process of tshuva, um, and it would appear, uh, by the process of healing that some tshuva is needed. Whichever way, if we take, certainly Miriam, if we take Uziyah, if we take Gehazi, Sarat is a, is, is a, something which afflicts a person when they have done a sin, and it appears very, very suddenly. That is not the case in our parsha. In Parshat Tazriah, where we see Tzarat, it's, um, there is no reason given for why a person is afflicted by Tzarat. We're told uh, when a person has Negat Tzarat, but we're not told the reason. Uh, the rabbis come along and talk about Lashon Hara, but here, no cause is given. Negat Tzarat Kitiyev Adam. When there is Tzarat on a person, almost as if it is um, a coincidence, something random. The, the, the sudden effect also isn't there, because um, if you look in the parasha, it seems like a person has it for a while, they bring it to the Kohen, he checks it out, he says, wait a week, they wait a week, has it spread, has it not spread, is it examined. Uh, where is this suddenness that appears throughout the Tanakh? But there are further differences as well. In our parasha, in Parshat Tazriah, the only way to determine Tarat is by an examination by a Kohen. Um, this we don't see in any other places in Tanakh. There is no Kohen who come exa- comes to examine Miriam Sarat, although there are Mephashim who talk about Aaron being there. But in, in all these cases, it is more in the realm of the Navi, Moshe, Elisha, than the realm of the Kohen. And therefore, who's responsible for Tarat? Is it the Kohen? Or is it uh, society at large, or possibly the Navi? The color of Tarat is also different. Everywhere else in Tanakh, uh, Tarat keeps on talking about Tarat Kashaleg, or Tarat It would appear that Tarat is of a, of a white uh, color. Whereas in our Pasha, Tarat can be many colors. Sometimes it's white, but sometimes it's pink, or just light. Uh, we talk about a a white hair, but we also talk about a yellow hair, and uh, in certain places it is yurakrak or adandam, a green color or a red color, and therefore there are many, many colors which make up sarat. Furthermore, uh, the the sarat the, the of our parsha uh, appears not only on the person, but it can also appear on clothes and even on houses, on buildings. Uh, that is not the case in other stories in Tanakh. We don't see cases where there is a uh, house which has sarat or even clothing. But what we do see is people, a people's uh, skin getting sarat. And therefore, I, I would say that uh, what we see here is uh, that Al-Parshah describes sarat in a, in a manner very, very different from the entire Tanakh outside Parshat Tazriyama Torah. And then we're going to have to ask the question, what is the uniqueness of our parsha? What is it trying to do? Um, if it appears so different, let's summarize the differences. In other places in the Torah, oh, I, I forgot to mention one thing. In all other places in the Torah, all other places in Tanakh, Sarat seems exceptionally visible. The minute somebody gets it, everybody can see it. It's frequently on the hand, 
or it's on the on the forehead or on some visible part of the body. In our parsha, it, it could be somewhere very hidden. Uh, one has to show it to the Kohen. And if you look in the Mishnayot, which deal with Sarat, uh, Mishn- they, they deal with all sorts of places in the body um, which would normally be covered by clothing where nobody would ever know that a person had Sarat. So, in short, our parsha Tazriyah, Mitzorah, deals with a very wide manifestation of of symptoms which constitute Sarat. Uh, different colors, they seem to have a very uh, slow and a careful process of of diagnosis by the Kohen. Um, we don't see any sin precipitating the Sarat. And um, it's it's almost uh, seems like some sort of uh, illness or skin condition, if one, if one would look at it. Although it's not only for skin, as we said, it's for skin, clothes, and uh, also for houses. Everywhere else in the Tanakh, it is part of a, a very different dynamic. Somebody sins, they do something against God, or God is angry, then suddenly they're afflicted in sort of a miraculous way, which is very evident to everybody what they have done, and that they are being afflicted by God, very suddenly with this white sara'at, and uh, there's a sense of panic uh, as this takes place, and uh, and the Navi intervenes frequently, and therefore we've got to ask ourselves what exactly is going on in Pasha Tazriyam Um if we're trying to look for answers, the methodology that I would usually take is to try and look at Sarat in context. Uh, try and see how Sarat is being described in the Torah, in the place where it's being described. And if we particularly focus on our parasha, we should realize that this description, this depiction of Sarat here in Sefer Vayikra is part of a wider group of uh, chapters, each of which uh, have at their focus the topic of uh, Tumah and Tahara. In truth, it already started in last week's parsha, in Parsha Shvini, where the final chapter, uh, chapter chapter 11, Perak Yud Aleph, deals with the Tumah and Tahara of animals, of birds, etc., where it talks about what we would call Kashrut, but after the section which deals with Kashrut, it starts talking about what animals, what dead animals, um, and uh, insects and whatever it might be, uh, make something tame, make something impure. And uh, the various different degrees of impurity and different uh, materials and the way that they can be uh, dealt with when they're impure. In other words, the topic of Tuman Tahara, of purity and impurity, already begins in chapter 11. Chapter 12 gives us the parsha of Tumat uh, Yoledet. When a woman gives birth, how long is she impure? Um, when is she allowed to come to the Mikdash? The rules are that for the birth of a boy, seven days, for the birth of a girl, two weeks, and then she will not be allowed to go to the uh, Bet Mikdash for a further 33 days or 36 or 66 days. We're not going to go into the details. Chapter 12 deals with Tumat Yoledet. Chapter 13 and 14 um, articulate all the different halachot, the different laws of um, the of Tzara'at, um, as we said, of the person, of the clothing, and also of houses. And then um, chapter 15 um, goes on to a further topic of Tumah, um, which deals with four different types of Tumah, which come from the reproductive organ, be it Nida or Zava, or be it Shikhvat Zera or Zav, uh, various different fluids that uh, come from the body, which generate uh, a sense of impurity. In other words, 
if we look at Tzriya um, Matzora, it is really uh, part of a of a wider unit of Sefer Vayikra, which um, delineates all of the different rules that uh, that uh, create Tumen Tahara to do with people. In fact, Rav David Tzvi Hoffman uh, says that whereas chapter 11 deals with animals, suddenly chapter 13, 14, and 15 deal with Tuma, which is generated from human beings. Tuma migufoshil ha'adam. Tuma, which actually is created from a person, starting with chapter 12, childbirth, 13 and 14, the unusual situation of Tzarat, and chapter 15, which deals with some normal situations, um, Shechvat Zera and Nida, and some abnormal situations, Zav and Zava. The question is why we need all these uh, parashiyot, why we need to detail Tuman Tahara here. And uh, if you look at the conclusion of the parsha, it is very clear why it is here. The parsha in Perek Tetvav, Pasuk Lamed Aleph, says, V'izhartem et b'nei Yisrael mitumatam, v'lo yamutu b'tumatam b'tamam et mishkani asher b'tocham. You should warn the children of Israel about their impurities, so they may not die in through their impure state when they create impurity in my mishkan, which is in their midst. If we look at Sefer Vayikra as a whole, I think we should understand where Tuma fits in. We have described in chapter 1 through 7 of Vayikra all of the different korbanot, all of the different sacrifices. Uh, how to bring an Allah, Khatat, Minchan, Asham, all of them. Um, we then move on to the dedication of the temple. And that's what we described at the end of Parashat Tzav and Parashat Shmini as we set up the temple, we set up the Mishkan, and God's presence was breathed into this uh, structure that we humans had created, and fire comes down from heaven, consumes the sacrifices on the first day or on the eighth day, and uh, and now God is indeed in our midst. It would appear that what follows is an entire unit, the Sefer Vayikra, which says, okay, you now have God's presence in the midst of the camp. You now have a temple. But you people, I've already, de- de- I've already briefed the Kohanim on how they're meant to act. But you people, you have to know that there are certain situations in which you are not allowed to approach, you're not allowed to enter the Migdash. You're not allowed to enter the Migdash if you're in any state of impurity. And uh, to that degree, maybe all the descriptions here of the different Tumat and Tara, Tat and Tara, and exactly there in following the dedication of the Mishkan to say, oh, this is your sanctity, this is how you create sanctity in the Mishkan, uh, you are not allowed to approach in this in this state. Uh, indeed, this is what the Rambam says in Moronavuchim. Um, the Rambam gives a very um, interesting explanation of the rules of uh, Tuman Tahara in uh, Moronavuchim. And he says like this, he says, the purpose of all the laws of purity and impurity is actually to distance people from the Migdash so that they only go there infrequently. And he talks about the notion that familiarity breeds contempt. Um, the He quotes the rabbis who say, uh, no one is allowed to come into the Azara to do the Avoda, um, even if they are pure, unless they have been to the Mikvah. And he says that all of these are uh, because we don't want a situation where somebody goes to the Mikdash at all times, and then they will simply see it as a routine uh, 
routine environment. No, the whole idea is that uh, you should be unfamiliar with the Migdash, it should be an event, it should be something very, very special, and and therefore all these rules actually are there to ensure that somebody doesn't go too often. I mean, if you think about it, um, many, many situations in life will generate Tumah. Um, sexual relations generate Tumah. We're talking about Shikhbat Zera. Uh, childbirth um, can generate Tumah. Um, coming into contact with various dead animals, if you're a farmer, uh, you'll uh, come very easily into situations of Tumah. Uh, death creates Tumah, and therefore anybody who is involved in uh, tending to the dead, the Chevra Kedisha, um, visiting a graveyard, will create Tumah. Therefore there will be a multitude of situations in which human beings are uh, automating. Um, the Raman says that means we can't just step into the Mingdash at any given time, and uh, this distances us. Now, uh, many people have criticized this, uh, critiqued this Rambam. They said, you know, what sort of a reason is that for Tumah and Tahara? What God says, I'm going to give you a Migdash, come and bring Karbanot, but really I don't want you to be there. Um, we'll come back to this Rambam, we'll put it on the side for the moment. Now, some people see it as a little, uh, a rather bizarre explanation of Tumah and Tahara, after all, so, so, so many details we have. Um, I'd like to move on to a slightly different approach. Um, and this goes to the approach of the Kuzari. Because he says that uh, what exactly is the idea of of, of Tumah? Why does God create all these different states of impurity? Uh, contact with the dead, contact with Sara'at, uh, menstruation. Um, what exactly are these uh, are these situations? He says, and this is maybe a famous explanation, um, that every situation of Tumah is created by uh, death. That in some way, um, the Mikdash is a place of life, it is not a place of death, and the it is inappropriate to come to uh, the temple when one has been in contact with the dead. Now one, there are different lines. The Kutari doesn't explain too much what he's getting at. Um, and in fact, in certain places, the Kutari seems to indicate that uh, all these laws are just simply chukim, um, following Rav Sadiqa on that they're simply chukim. But if we, some people have interpreted this as uh, trying to keep away from pagan practices. Um, many pagan practices involve connections with the dead, the Ov and the Yidoni, the Doresh al and the Torah warns us again and again and again not to get involved in these sort of uh, black magic uh, practices. And it could be that, uh, as with many other things, the Torah was adamant that uh, our type of service in our temple would be very, very different and from uh, around us and devoid of any polluting, 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 some other world, 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 some other world. Um, in order to do some service with it because they thought this would give them some vision for the future or some sort of extra power um, and, and that was the idea the Torah wants to keep us far, far, far away from that and therefore um, it stopped us having anybody who's Tameh, anybody who's contact with anything even mildly dead um, has to be restricted from the Migdash that's one way of reading the Kuzari however there is a further possibility of uh, looking at the idea of the Kuzari let me 
try and uh, elaborate. And this I'm going to take from Rav Soloveitchik's book, Halachic Man. In Rav Soloveitchik's book, he talks about the fact that Halacha, or Judaism in general, um, is, is, is really abhors death. And he goes into a, a whole piece where he talks about the way that Judaism is very, very uh, sensitive to to keep away from death, but not because it despises death, in a sense, because it loves life. Rasulovicic says the following, uh, Many religions view the phenomenon of death as a positive spectacle, inasmuch as it highlights and sensitizes the religious consciousness and sensibility. They therefore sanctify death and the grave, because it is here that we find ourselves at the threshold of transcendence, at the portal of the world to come. Death is seen as a window filled with light, open to an exalted supernal realm. Judaism, however, proclaims that coming into contact with the dead precipitates defilement. Judaism abhors death, organic decay and dissolution. It bids one to choose life and sanctify it. Authentic Judaism is reflected in halakhic thought, sees in death a terrifying contradiction to the whole of religious life. Death negates the entire magnificent experience of halakhic man. And the Rav continues, and he says, um, Judaism has a negative attitude towards death. A corpse defiles, a grave defiles. A person who has been defiled by a corpse is defiled for seven days, and is forbidden to eat any sacred offerings or enter the temple. A Nazir who has been defiled by a corpse cancels his previous count. And obviously, uh, the Rav wants to know why. And he explains the following, and I quote from Halakhic Man again, the halacha is not at all concerned with transcendent world. The world to come is a tranquil, quiet world that is wholly good, wholly everlasting and wholly eternal, where a man will receive the reward for the commandments which he has performed in this world. However, the receiving of reward is not a religious act, and therefore halachic man prefers the real world to a transcendent existence, because here in the world, man is given the opportunity to create, act, accomplish, while there in the world to come, he is powerless to change anything. The task of the religious individual is bound up with performance of commandments, and this performance is confined to this world. This very eloquent explanation by Rav Soloveitchik goes to explain, maybe, why Tuma is the antithesis. antithesis, antithesis, antithesis. Um, Judaism uh, wants us to do Avodat Hashem in this world. We mustn't uh, be otherworldly folk, otherworldly folk, otherworldly folk, otherworldly folk, that we want to somehow reach the world to come so badly that we forget about this world. There are so many mitzvot to do in this world. Mitzvot of Chesed, mitzvot of Kedusha. And therefore... Um, after we mention the place which is the Mikdash itself, we stress the fact that uh, Judith, 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 we are cleaned of death, um, will we be able to enter the Mikdash? Now you might ask, by the way, um, and it's a big question that many Mepharshim ask, how could it possibly be that childbirth generates death? And here are whole, and here are have been su- suggested um, I don't want to go in too much detail to that. One of the interesting suggestions that were given um, is that 
and this maybe is a little morbid, but uh, a child is born, and that is a moment of, of uh, birth. But from the moment we're born, we're dying. In other words, uh, the, the human being is a mortal being. Uh, a, a more positive approach, which might explain why Tumat Yoledet, a childbirth creator, is that uh, the woman herself has been uh, involved in a life-producing activity for uh, the last nine months. And now, um, the child is given life, but she personally experienced that loss of life from her body, and that loss of life itself um, maybe creates tumor. Whichever way, um, what I want to suggest is that this whole unit that we're dealing with here is a unit about tumor. Um, and that is the place of Tazriya Matora in Sefer Vaikra, and that is the special type of tumor of t- that we're dealing with here in to do with Tzarat. So to try and summarize, we started off as Shir by saying that there were two different types, 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 is specifically dealing with the type of um, tarat in its relationship with the laws of purity and impurity, defilement, which are only relevant in life as regards entering the temple. Now here I'd like to mention a certain paradox, and with this paradox we're going to uh, bring our shear to the close. Um, the paradox is this. On the one hand, the Migdash is our place of sanctity, um, but on the other hand, what we're effectively saying is that uh, the Migdash is a place which is removed from life. Let me explain that. Let me explain that. Let me explain that. All different parts of life, parts of life, parts of life, parts of life. Um, sexual relations, uh, childbirth, um, menstruation, death itself, even farming can bring one into contact with Tumah, Tumah of animals. An animal dies, he's in a Vela, creates Tumah. What that means is essentially that when I go to the Migdash, I am taking a step out of life. Uh, the Migdash, in a certain sense, is an ivory tower. He's saying, The person who comes to the Har Hashem, to the mountain of God, is asked to be one of clean hands. We ask to do tshuva before we come. We ask to go to the mikvah before we come. We ask to purify ourselves. When we come to appear before God, we don't come to God with our cell phone on. We are asked to leave, in, even according to the halachot of the Migdash, we're not allowed to come with our money bag, our purse, we're not allowed to come with our, even our shoes. We're meant to come not as we're running errands, and, oh, let's pop into the Bet Migdash to bring a korban. The Migdash, and maybe here I return to the Rambam, the Migdash is meant to be an event, it's meant to be taking a step out of life. And therefore, there is a certain irony that even though Rav Soloveitchik says that Judaism affirms life, in a sense uh, the Mignash is not life affirming. In a sense the Mignash doesn't affirm all the errands that we have to do and our, and our work which occupies us during the day and our childbearing and child raising and family lives. The Mignash says, if you want to visit me, HaKadosh Baruch says, if you want to come to my Mignash, you have to remove yourself from the hustle and bustle from all of the ins and outs of life and come and put yourself on a on the Har Hashem. Go cleanse yourself from all of that. Go take yourselves out of regular life and put yourself on an even higher plane. Not on a plane of, uh, of just Kedusha, but on a plane of Tahara. 
in life maybe we can become Kadosh. But Kadosh isn't enough for the Migdash. For the Migdash we have to be Tahar, we have to be pure. When, as I say this, I realize that in these parashiyot, um, we actually see a double layering. Let me again try and explain what I mean. We mentioned chapter 11. Chapter 11 deals with the impurity of animals, but it also deals with the kashrut of animals. That means that chapter 11 doesn't only deal with Tumantara as relates to going to the Mikdash, but it also relates to another dimension, the animals that we eat in our regular life, in our regular uh, seven-day week. What are we going to put on our table? Not on God's table, on our table. When we deal with Tumat Yoledet, sure, the question of Tumantara deals with Am I going to be allowed to enter the Mikdash? But along with that, we actually have another mitzvah. And that mitzvah is mitzvah milah. That is a mitzvah that reflects not life within the temple, but rather life outside the temple. How do I, in some way, give sanctity to my newborn baby, helping him to join the covenant of Avram Avinu, 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 the same thing is true with other mitzvot, most prominently, um, Tumat Nidah. Tumat Nidah has an element of Tuma and Tahara, which affect entry to the Midrash. But they also regulate uh, intimacy and family life. So what I'm really saying is that these laws of Tuma and Tahara, whereas they can be seen in a very narrow um, basis, as giving shape to um, our entry to, or non or non elements that um, affect our lives in the outside world. Not in the inner world, the ivory tower, the Har Hashem of the Midash, but rather out in the fields and streets and villages and houses um, of, of uh, Eretz Yisrael. And maybe this goes to explain the two different types of Sarat that we mentioned at the beginning of our shir. There are indeed two different types of Sarat. One is the technical Sarat that has to be examined by the Kohen, the officiary of the Migdash, which has to undergo a very pedantic uh, process of diagnosis. Uh, the symptoms can be varied in many different ways. And they relate to the inner world of the Migdash. Will I be allowed to go and bring my Korban Pesach? Will I be allowed to go... Um, to Ali Ali Regal, I go to the Kohen, I call him round and say, hey, you know, I've got this uh, patch, Does, is this Sarat, is this not, what am I going to have to do, uh, will I need to be quarantined, etc., etc. But the Tanakh describes a totally different type of Sarat. Uh, maybe it's the same Sarat, but it is a different manifestation, it's a different effect. It's an, it is an outside Mikdash effect. It is a worldly effect. It deals with the deeds that we do in our regular life in society. And it's, it affects people suddenly as a responsiveness to their sin, as a responsiveness to their action. That's a route that we see with Gechazi, with Uziah, with Miriam, with Moshe, with all these, um, is a different type of Sarat. It's a, it's a Sarat which represents a very, very close level of intimacy with the Kaddish Baruch Hu, where God, in the normal course of life, suddenly says, no, that was out of order. You are close to me. I need to give you a warning. I need to say something to you. And therefore give somebody Sarat. And therefore, even though these different types of sarat seem radically different from each other, and they are indeed different, uh, what's really happening here is that one represents a sarat which uh, is connected to the inner world of the Mishkan, the Mikdash, and one actually expresses the manifestation of Kedusha, the manifestation of the man-God relationship which takes place in the outside world. 
Thank you very much. Shabbat shalom. Mitraot.